Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 5. Without further ado, let us jump right in to the book of Exodus, chapter 5, if you have your Bibles out. Now we'll go ahead and start with verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we beg, a three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to him, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. As heretofore, let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks which they made heretofore you shall lay upon them, you shall by no means lessen it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. All right. Now, in verses 1 to 9, what you have here is more collectively the initial confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh, and what is highlighted in this initial confrontation, but the request to allow Israel to embark on a three-day pilgrimage. This is not only rejected, but is met with greater cruelty. And really at issue, my friends, are what questions? But who is the Lord? The Pharaoh doesn't know who this Lord is, right? And second here, how about the question, and to whom does Israel belong, Yahweh or Pharaoh? I think this is a question, my friends, that is before each and every one of us in everything that we do. I say question, and I should say questions. A, who is the Lord? And B, in light of who is the Lord, who do we belong to, Yahweh or Pharaoh? I put those two questions before you, and I challenge you to answer those questions as I look into the mirror and challenge myself. Now, what about verse 5? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. Rest. The Hebrew verb here is related to the word Sabbath. And what's important about that is that it hints at an unstated contrast, that God requires work 
to give way to worship every seventh day, right? We're going to talk about this a lot more once we get into the Decalogue and keeping the Sabbath holy. So on one front, God requires work to give way to worship every seventh day. But on the other, what's the demand? Pharaoh demands nothing but work from his slaves and tries to do what but crowd out worship out of their lives entirely. How important is that? Have our lives become so busy because we have claimed idols, pharaohs, if you will, over and above God, the Lord, Yahweh, that we no longer worship? Have we got wrapped up into the routine of the day where we are thinking less and less about God? My hope is if you're listening to this radio program, that's not true. But if it is, and you just happen to stumble upon this radio program or podcast, I would challenge you again. And when I say challenge you, I always put that challenge before me. I really do, earnestly and honestly. To look at the seriousness of what we are talking about here. Have we seized in our worship of the one true God, still claiming that we can be good without the transcendent good? That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Only in light of the good, capital G, can we even begin to understand the willed good because not every good in of itself is a willed good. Brothers and sisters, there can be ten goods before me. But is it always God's will that I embrace all ten? What if doing ten goods is stretching me so far and so thin that I begin to lose sleep? That I am now unable to be present to those closest to me? especially in my family life. That out from that, I simply can't give anything to those ten goods. You see, my friends, Satan sets up traps. And sometimes a series of goods can be a trap. Focus on the one thing. Unum necessarium est. What is the one thing necessary? That's what we have to be asking ourselves. And let me tell you, worship is always... (laughs) A good. That's always the willed good. And that's certainly something we're going to be made to see all throughout this book. You know, when I talk about the book of Exodus and what the Israelites were doing, I always get these kind of footnote questions. One of the questions I do get is, what about the straw? How do you make bricks to build? Well, if you were to go into antiquity, and many commentaries pick this up, certainly the Ignatius commentary does, what you would do is chop up straw and then mix that chopped up, chopped up straw with what but mud. Uh, over time, the straw releases an acid, and that acid makes the bricks more durable, lasting, right? Certainly, brick laying and, and brick building was a common practice in antiquity, and the Israelites uh, were good at it. All right, let us continue. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go yourselves, get your straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, 
as when there was straw. And the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today as before? Then the foremen of the sons of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you deal thus with your servants? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in evil plight when they said, You shall by no means lessen your daily number of bricks. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made us offensive in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You see, my friends, (laughs) Pharaoh didn't get it. He just didn't get it. And he was made to punish the Israelites further. And the Israelites see this as what but an evil plight. So they turn to Moses and Aaron, making an appeal to Moses and Aaron. One of a complaint, really. And then what does Moses do? Well, he turns to the Lord with his own appeal. What do we read in verse 22? O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. Yes, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Isn't that interesting? Recall what we have talked about up to this point with respect to the encounter between Moses and God in the burning bush. Moses' refusal to respond to God, and finally he does go. But after one complaint, what happens? Well, evidently, his faith was weak. Like Abraham, who is our forefather in faith, Moses doubted. Yet, we know their stories, and we know that they rose up in great faith, faithfulness, trust. And so, as we get inside the story, I would just alert you, maybe to the lack of faith, as an encouragement, because you and I lack faith, right? I know I lack faith. And to know that Abraham and Moses, of all people, didn't always have the, the best faith, that can be an encouragement. Anyhow, Moses goes to God. He makes an appeal. Hey, what's up, God? What happened? And ultimately, God responds. There is no series of questions between Moses and God, just an answer. Be rest assured, Moses, I will come through. All right, for the remainder of our time, I wanted to talk about a word that jumped out to me when I was reading this text, and that is the word wilderness. My friends, I do think insight can be gained into how to better understand wilderness um, all throughout sacred scripture by focusing in on what is taking place in the book of Exodus. The theological meaning of the wilderness theme 
uh, most notably in the book of Exodus and the book of Genesis, is unusually rich with these proposed themes ranging from positive divine discipline to proof of God's providential care, where God looks for a response of devotion to him. In spirit of the liturgy, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI asserted that the only goal of the exodus from Egypt is that of worshiping God according to God's own specifications. That even the land is promised only so that the people would be free to worship. Among other chapters and verses, I would have to imagine the good Pope was considering Exodus 5, no doubt. Now, when reflecting upon the importance of the wilderness, we ought to always be present to the simple fact that the relationship between God and his chosen people is strengthened by way of trust through communication that is facilitated by the solitude and isolation of the desert. Certainly we see this in the New Testament as Jesus is led by the Spirit, huh? Led by the Spirit into the desert, a place of wilderness. Which is to also say, the New Testament tends to interpret the Old Testament Old Testament wilderness experiences, that is, as times of grace and closeness to God marked by obedience and sometimes disobedience, right? Indeed, my friends, the wilderness seems to have everything to do with relationship and worship, which again has to do with building trust. Now, in the Old Testament, there appears to be two reasons for venturing into the wilderness. Either one is running away from one's problems, into what is seen as a kind of safe haven, if you will, or one is driven against one's will into what appears to be quite inhospitable, quite dangerous, we could say. Now, these two faces of the wilderness can alternate within any one story we find in sacred scripture, sometimes even inseparably. In two stories, my friends, paralleling one another to a remarkable degree, uh, we find these two aspects playing themselves out. And what are these stories but the stories of Moses and Hagar? Incidental themes of slavery and abuse tie the stories together. We talked about Hagar in our study on the book of Genesis, right? How about Moses? Not only slavery and abuse, but also geographic locations. For example, Sarah did to her Egyptian slave what the Egyptian slaves would later do to her offspring. Moses and Hagar each entered the wilderness twice. First, they ran away from oppressive situations and and family conflicts that involved ambiguous roles, right? Recall what we talked about earlier in our study on Exodus. Moses ran from certain punishment for murder after finding himself caught between his Jewish heritage and his royal Egyptian status, gained through his adoption. Hagar, impregnated in place of the master's wife, had been abused by Sarah, so she ran away into the wilderness. In both cases, my friends, Hagar and Moses encountered God, understood God by new names, received a promise, and were told to return to their difficult situations. With Hagar, what? Genesis 16, right? And of course, as we have been discussing with Moses, Exodus chapters 2 and 3. Hagar returned to be a slave. 
and Moses returned to take his place with the enslaved Israelites and to free them from Egypt. Do you see this juxtaposition, huh? the importance of this juxtaposition? Now, what is the meaning of this initial wilderness experience? Well, Hagar was found by a spring of water, and Moses, even better off, was married and tending sheep before his theophany. It was hardly a time of purgation for either of them. The wilderness has been called a place of temporary escape, transformation, in light of this first entrance. You see, my friends, the wilderness not yet dangerous is, however, an isolated, quiet place. In the case of Hagar and Moses, it allowed God a chance to have a private conversation, giving both Moses and Hagar a first glimpse of God and his plan for them. Secondly, both Hagar and Moses were driven into the wilderness a second time. But this time, the wilderness was more threatening than inviting, huh? And provisions were packed before setting out. We have yet to get there in our study on Moses, but we will in time. (laughs) When Hagar and Moses were driven out by their original oppressors, God was evidently the orchestrator, verbally directing Abraham and hardening Pharaoh's heart. In both cases, my friends, God used family and what? But political conflicts in order to separate people that trusted in his promise. As it was once observed of the wilderness, the hope has been proclaimed, but the horizon keeps disappearing in the sandstorms. Something like that, right? <laughs> it's interesting, my friends. More often than not, the two faces of wilderness alternate, oh, we can say ambivalently within a given story. For example, Israel left the slavery of Egypt willingly. But they were also driven to the Red Sea by fear of Pharaoh's chariots. Huh? The wilderness was a safe haven from one kind of danger, but it was immediately inhospitable too. You see what's going on there? That interplay? Israel's wandering inseparably walked the line between intimacy with God, such as no one had ever experienced, and on the other hand, temptations, insecurity, discomfort. The wilderness is not the kind of place one normally chooses for oneself, but it is God's favored place from which to show his care and concern. It is a place that one enters by cutting off one's past in an attempt to make a fresh start, we could say. And the time is usually one of deepened understanding about the mind of God. Regardless of the individual outcome, we can argue that God desires the wilderness. Now, one constant between both faces, if you will, is that entering the wilderness always means what? But leaving one's whole life behind. Here I'm thinking of, well, arguably the first monk, St. Anthony of Egypt. Hmm. He left everything behind. Wilderness experiences do not always have to be a time of trial and pain. In fact, they might even be an oasis from some form of abuse, trial, suffering. Wilderness experiences can be a time of transformation resulting from the quiet and solitude of the wilderness. 
where there is now room for God to speak. In Scripture, it certainly would appear that God always takes advantage of these situations, transforming us by way of drawing us deeper into relationship with Him. In the wilderness, my friends, we have no one but God to seek out for proximity and security. What's more, isolation does more than just ensure that we have no one to turn to besides God. The uncomfortable fact is that God often awaits to answer prayers until the situation becomes, what, but dire. Lack of food, lack of water, lack of heirs until one is past the age of fertility, raising people from the dead, and the list goes on. Why does he wait if his purpose is to increase our trust in him? Well, my friends, at least a partial answer to this question is that the wilderness is about leaving one's life behind. That is the purpose right? We are seekers of truth, not for the sake of acquiring knowledge abstract from God. No. We seek truth, knowledge of the truth, to organize our reality, huh? to give us purpose. No one truth is going to organize our reality quicker than poverty itself, than to be alone with God. God responded when Moses and Hagar left their complicated situations behind. But what he really wanted was for them to give up lives that were worth something to them, huh? Once Moses and Hagar no longer wanted to be in the wilderness, the time was ripe for them to go. So they were driven to re-enter. In Exodus 5, the good Lord wants his people to begin to experience the way of the wilderness and worship as a way to draw closer to him. My dear friends, we reflect into this word wilderness because Satan has turned up the volume on our lives. Everywhere we turn, there is noise, and that noise is getting louder and louder. How easy it is to surround oneself with a constant barrage of noise in the form of entertainment, news, so on and so forth, which utterly prevents the kind of quiet recollection necessary to hear God as it ought to occur in the quiet of our heart. So we go into the wilderness. And as we go into the wilderness, as we go into this barren land, we do so mindful that we have this call to enter deeper into God. And this is what, my friends, the church represents, right? We find Catholic churches in the middle of all our cities. Why? Because in the busyness of our cities, we have a place to recollect. We have a place to go to. That place is what we call the church. And once we arrive into that church, what do we do? But we enter into worship with the one true God. Huh? Moses wanted to take the Israelites, my friends, into the wilderness to offer up a sacrifice that they might be strengthened in God strengthened by way of worship. So what they were going to continue to do, they would have that relationship, that strength to lean into. And this is what we are to be present to today. We worship that everything else we do might be given its proximity and its meaning. Amen? Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit.
as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.